When you think about countries with a prominent female leader, which countries come to mind? If you answered New Zealand, well, you are not alone. My name is Kate Graham. When I started to share with people that Canada 2020 was going to produce a second season of the No Second Chances podcast, this time examining what other countries are doing to see more women rise to top political roles, well, a common response was, are you doing New Zealand? Yes, yes, we are. Welcome to the next stop on our tour. We've been from Canada to Denmark to Taiwan to Chile so far, and today we're in New Zealand. New Zealand is a small country of about 5 million people living across two islands in the southwestern Pacific Ocean. It is a beautiful country. Think Lord of the Rings lush landscapes, rolling green hills, island life vistas everywhere, and a third of the country protected as a national reserve. And it's got a long history of progressive politics. New Zealand was the first country in the world to extend the right to vote to women in 1893, decades before we did so in Canada. New Zealand is a country with a lot of similarities to Canada. It's a constitutional monarchy, recognizing Queen Elizabeth as the head of state and currently represented by an indigenous Maori woman as the governor general. But it's also a country that has made some different choices than we have. New Zealand adopted proportionate representation almost three decades ago now, and they've never looked back. The country has made major advances towards indigenous reconciliation, a process to reclaim land dating back to the 1970s, the recognition of Maori as an official language alongside English and sign language, a set minimum number of seats for Maori people in the legislature, the inclusion of Maori teachings in the education system, and finally, national television and media broadcast in the Maori language. And of course, New Zealand has had not one, not two, but three female prime ministers now. And the current prime minister, Jacinda Ardern, has become something of a global political celebrity. I first started paying close attention to Ardern in January of 2018. While serving as the youngest female head of government in the world, she tweeted a photo of two big and one tiny fishing hooks, announcing that she was pregnant and that she would continue working as prime minister while her husband, Clark, would be a stay-at-home dad. And the headlines just kept coming. In the wake of the horrific Christchurch mosque shooting, Ardern wept with the victim's families and then announced major policy change in that order, banning semi-automatic weapons. Her strong leadership during the pandemic, including swift lockdowns, coupled with near-daily Instagram and Facebook Live videos explaining these decisions about the pandemic, made international headlines and landed her a place on the best leader lists from Forbes to Fortune magazine. Admittedly, I have been a huge Jacinda Ardern fan, but one of the things I find most impressive about her is a lesser-known fact— Ardern has made a few cabinets now that include members of multiple political parties. That's right, people who do not sit in her same political party, even after landing a majority government. And today, we're going to hear from two incredible women who know the inside story on this very well. My name's Julianne Genter. I was born in the United States and mostly grew up there. I've had an interest in political issues 
from a very young age. I remember being about 11, 12 and being having really strong opinions about things like the U.S. going to war with Iraq over Kuwait. I th- think I put up a sign in our house saying no blood for oil. And my parents were really embarrassed at the time and asked me to take it down. Um, I was really passionate about environmental protection. And I think also around that age, I was living in Southern California. Uh, so in Los Angeles County. And I remember being really interested in why the community I lived in felt so inaccessible for a young person. I couldn't really walk anywhere where I saw other people. It was extremely car dependent. And that probably that early inquiry sort of led me to study urban planning in my mid-20s. Genter left the United States to study, first in Paris and then in New Zealand. And it wasn't long before she found herself holding elected office in her new country. Shortly after arriving in New Zealand, I met people from the Green Party of Aotearoa New Zealand. And I, it was really exciting for me because, you know, I knew when I came to New Zealand that um, I thought it would be a good country to potentially settle in because it's a small country. And I had this idea that small countries had a better chance of democracy working well. Um, and they had MMP, they had a female prime minister at the time, Helen Clark, and the Green Party was in parliament, but not officially in government. Um, I ended up joining the Green Party here just because it was the first time I saw politicians really articulating the things that I believe strongly in and the solutions that I knew would work to help us transition to a zero carbon future, to address the biodiversity crisis, and to address inequality. And I just, when I joined, I actually really was just doing it to be a volunteer and to help out. I did not in my wildest imagination imagine that I would be elected to parliament in New Zealand in at the end of 2011, which was about five and a half years after I arrived in the country. And it was the year that I became a New Zealand citizen. Now, for Canadian listeners who may not be familiar with mixed member proportionate systems, here's the short version. On election day, citizens get two votes who they want to represent them in their own riding, and the party they support. So the number of seats each party gets in the legislature are allocated by the proportion of the popular vote, filled first by the people who won in their ridings, and then topped up with people elected within political parties as what's called list representatives. Jacinda Ardern herself, for example, is from a riding where labor candidates are just not likely to win. So even after losing a riding race, she was elected to parliament as the list member for her party. So what does this process actually feel like? I remember in 2008 um, being a delegate at a conference that the Green Party uses to rank its list of candidates, and that determines who gets into parliament generally for the Green Party because we are primarily list MPs. And I remember watching the candidates go through that and thinking there's no way I could put myself through this. It would just be so anxiety provoking. So watching the candidates go through that and see them go through a process where they were actually ranked seemed impossible to me. And I think this would be common for many women just having a kind of being too hard on yourself, being a bit of a perfectionist, um, feeling the judgment of others very strongly and, and and potentially in a negative way. And I probably would not have considered, even though I 
saw the role of an MP as one that I would find really interesting and exciting. I also thought, who am I to think I could do that? Especially because at the time, you know, I'm in my late 20s. I'm an immigrant to New Zealand. There weren't many young women in Parliament. Uh, Sound familiar, ladies? I thought, who am I to be an MP? Um, But I also saw that a number of women MPs had retired and that there was a need for new women to put their name forward um, because we have this uh, gender-balanced approach to list ranking and generally fewer women were putting their hand up to stand for parliament. So I just said, you know what? It's not up to me to decide whether I should be in parliament or not. It's actually the party's choice and they're better off if I put myself forward. And that helped me give up my sort of anxiety around potentially being rejected or not being ranked highly or thinking, who am I? I just like, actually, it's not up to me. I'll just put my, I'll do the best I can. It'll be what it'll be. And in all, all honesty, I didn't think I would get in in 2011 because we'd never polled higher than um, 7%. We'd never had more than nine MPs and I was ranked 13 But um, about six weeks out from the 2011 election, there was a big environmental catastrophe. A container ship ran into a reef overnight and there was oil washing up on beaches and various other factors probably influenced this. But the Green Party's vote just jumped way up. And we elected 13 MPs on the night and 14 when the special votes were counted. So I was, you know, up until six weeks before the election, I really didn't think I'd be elected. I tell you the story just just to say that, like, the fact that the Green Party had this gender-balanced approach, that we have co-leaders, a female co-leader and a male co-leader, that we have, um, you know, an, an approach that tries to make sure that 50% of our list is female, that at least um, 10% of our list is Māori, that um, we have young people, so we say at least 10% is young, are, are young, That approach just means that we have people who wouldn't traditionally see themselves as representatives thinking there's a place for me here. I should put my name forward and I should be part of this, you know. This would turn out to be quite an understatement for Genter. As a Green Party member, she didn't expect to get elected. And I suspect she also didn't expect to one day be sitting in cabinet. But roll the clock forward a few years, and that's exactly where she was. Minister of Women as a Green Party MP, sitting in the cabinet of Labour leader and Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. But the story gets even better. You know, Jacinda Ardern, who's became the leader of the Labour Party and the Prime Minister, she and I had stood in a by-election together in early 2017. And we're about the same age. She's six months younger than me. Um, and between the, you know, between the by-election and the election, Um, She became deputy leader and then leader and then won the election and she became prime minister and I became minister for women. And uh, both of us had 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 actually tried to um, have children earlier on and probably neither of us were thinking this would be a good time in our career to um, have a child. And yet we both ended up surprisingly, um, it was definitely a surprise to both of us um, becoming pregnant within, you know, not too long of the election. So here I was, I was minister for woman and I was pregnant with my first child. And I remember at the end over the Christmas summer break thinking, Oh my God, I don't know if any other ministers had a baby in office before. How am I going to tell my colleagues about this? 
And then before I could even tell them I was coming back from my 12 week scan, we had a call from the prime minister with all the ministers on it. And she was telling us she was 19 weeks pregnant. Um, so then that became very easy for me, obviously, because, you know, she was, she was pregnant. She had the baby first. Uh, so it sort of set the precedent. No problem for the minister for women to also have a baby. Now, if like me, you follow political news, you may also recall seeing a photo of Genter as a very pregnant minister for women riding her bike to the hospital. Yeah, I did end up cycling to the hospital. And the reason was I, I didn't live that far from the hospital. I had an e-bike. Um, I usually use a bike to get around. And it was a beautiful, beautiful Sunday morning. And I was actually sort of sad about the fact that I was going to the hospital to be induced because I'd waited till 42 weeks, hoping I could have like home birth and natural birth. But if you have to be induced, you have to go to the hospital. And we we had a car at the time, um, a small plug-in electric hybrid that only sat for people. And I had my mom there and my brother and his wife and my partner. And so there were five of us and there was no, we were going to have to make two trips to the hospital. And I said, you know, I want to ride my bike. And my partner said, oh yeah, I'll ride with you. And then we knew that my brother and his wife could go in the car and then they could cycle bikes back for us. Um, and we ended up spending a couple of days in the hospital before the labor even started. Um, but yeah, it, the funniest thing about that was just how wide it went. Like I put it on Instagram thinking my friends and family would find it entertaining and interesting, but I had no idea it was going to be like global headlines. <laughs> it must've been a slow news day, but really, you know, here we were in the hospital waiting for this induction process to start. And, you know, there were articles in the New York times and the guardian, and we heard about it. And I had the minister of transport in uh, Argentina email me and say, congratulations. I just read about this. Um, so it was quite, it was quite entertaining. It was a nice distraction and it was a nice story. So I had to ask, what's it actually like working across party lines, including around a cabinet table? That is, I mean, it's a tough question. It's probably not as rosy as it looks from the outside. Um, The Labour Party and the Green Party have definitely been working together, you know, for the last, since we were in opposition together um, in, you know, from 2008 to 2017, Mm -hmm. our, our relationship steadily improved during that time. And that's probably come with a generational change within labor as well. I would say that it was not so friendly 20 years ago, Um, but we have worked together constructively. Um, That doesn't mean that, you know, we can totally trust each other on everything (laughs) with the center-right party and the kind of right libertarian party, the ACT party. um, We sometimes collaborate, but... um, I would say it's, you know, it's still old school politics. Like it's still very confrontational. And because we have such different worldviews, it can, you know, you get kind of irritated with people. Um, in the house, I can't stand in our debating chamber. There's constant like barracking and yelling at each other. And that's, it's not a nice environment. I hope the more women and the more young people that are elected to parliament, that culture changes because it can be, it comes across quite childish. I think it undermines the public's view of politicians when they see, you know, people acting like children in the debating chamber. Um, And sure, we're all passionate and we have strong feelings and it's fair enough to have, you know, those strong feelings. But I've 
there's no other professional environment where people heckle each other and yell at each other when they're up there speaking. So I just, I, I, I would like us to move away from that um, culture. And the Green Party long set a standard of not engaging in that. But I have to say that some of us, um, the longer you're in there, the more you just end up doing it. Like I, I'm totally guilty of yelling at people, not just like calling the names though. I would usually be yelling out facts, like fact checking, fact checking what they're saying. Um, but still it's, um, it's not a very professional environment. It's not as rosy, but it's also not as polarized as larger countries politics, I think. And even in countries that don't have MMP, so they're less likely to need these kind of multi-party governing coalitions, um, then there's probably less reason to have constructive relationships and it can be a bit more, you know, I would just observe that the relationship between the Australian Labour Party and the Australian Green Party is not great. It's much more competitive. Um, and that's my perception of of things and and some other Anglophone countries as well. I think New Zealand is the only English speaking country that has MMP. It's very common in uh, Europe and other parts of Europe, and I think it's been really instrumental in ensuring that we that we do have a female prime minister, that we have so many female ministers, that we have um, much more progressive governing coalitions generally, and. Um, even when the center-right party were in government, um, arguably they were more centrist, whereas you've seen like in the United States, the right and the left have become more polarized and and there's less of an incentive to come to a consensus or to... No, I'm not arguing that centrism is a good thing, but, um, but certainly compared to the sort of extreme... Um, right-wing positions that the Republicans have taken where things are really going kind of backwards in some U.S. states. I think the electoral system is really important to support a more consensus-based approach to politics and a more representative approach. I asked Genter about policy priorities. So what's next for translating this better representation of women into politics into broader gender equity in New Zealand? as Minister for Women, when I talked to other countries, um, was that paid parental leave and early childhood education policies were really instrumental in improving um, women's roles, ability to sort of pursue their careers and show leadership. And those kind of family-friendly policies that mean that both men and women are taking parental leave. Um, And that's something that I think New Zealand could do much better on. I don't know what your policies are like in Canada, but we only have 26 weeks paid parental leave. Um, It's at less than minimum wage and not everybody is eligible to receive it. Um, When I spoke to my counterparts in Sweden and Iceland and I said, oh, we've extended paid parental leave to 26 weeks, they all looked aghast and said, weeks? (laughs) Because they have policies of like nine to 13 months of paid parental leave at 80% of your salary. And they have in Iceland a policy where you have three months for the mother, three months for the other parent, and three months that can be divided between the two of you. And everybody, all parents get two weeks off um, when the baby's born and that seems like quite an ideal policy. And then they have kind of fully funded high quality early childhood education, um, you know, so that 
it makes it really easy for families to take that time with a new baby. And it means that fathers are more likely to take on more of the um, par- parenting roles and some of the unpaid work at home. And because, you know, in New Zealand, we still have mothers taking most of the parental leave, not getting paid very well for it. Um, and that sort of sets a pattern that ends up meaning that women are doing more of the unpaid work at home throughout the time the kids are growing up and that limits their ability to progress in their careers and to do other things. Um, while that's starting to change, we have some employers providing really generous parental leave policies. It's not universal. My partners took seven months unpaid leave with our son and we were enormously privileged that we were in a position that he could do that. And it's been really great, but, you know, and I also talked to people in Sweden where they have at least four months has to be taken by the other parent or it's, or it's forfeited. Um, while there's a greater percentage of it that's taken by the mother or the primary caregiver. Um, I think they're trying to change that. It's still, it's a long period of time where you're financially supported to stay at home and look after your child, but then you can easily transition to going back to work. Um, there's also a lot more family friendly policies with respect to like flexible working hours and uh, shorter work week and all of that. It just helps people balance the work they're doing at home with the work they're doing out there that, you know, it's more likely to be paid. And if you want women to be able to do more in leadership roles, then men have to do more of the domestic work basically. And so you can have policies that support that. I would say New Zealand's not particularly advanced in that space, but it's something that I've certainly been advocating for um, since I've been minister for women. In the spirit of working across party lines, I think it's important to hear a perspective from someone with experience in another party, in a governing party. And my goodness, it was an honor to speak to our next guest. Her Excellency, the Honorable Dame Annette King, currently serves as New Zealand's High Commissioner to Australia. But prior to this role, she was a leader in the Labour Party, now led by Jacinda Ardern. She was a cabinet minister, deputy leader, and deputy leader of the official opposition. And she has a powerful story to tell. I'm from a very small town in the South Island of New Zealand on the West Coast called Murchison. And my father came from a long line of coal miners uh, who came out of the UK into New Zealand. Um, And even my dad started in the coal mine in our town when he was 14, but later moved on to work in in, uh, Post and Telegraph. But they were very strong Labour supporters. And so from a very early age, I would hear my parents talking politics with my grandparents who live next door. And my grandparents had been Labour supporters, but in their old age, and when they got the pension, decided that they'd vote for the the National Party, the other party in New Zealand, the other main party. And so there were fierce debates on politics. Um, So it it, um, sparked my interest. And then uh, later on, I joined the Labour Party and I studied politics at university and finally ended up in Parliament myself. Uh, It wasn't my life's ambition to be an MP, uh, but in the run-up to the 1984 election, Um, the Labour Women's um, Council of New Zealand had put a a message out and and a push out for more women to be elected to Parliament. 
Um, there were only eight women in Parliament out of a Parliament of about 99 at that stage. And so they asked women to come forward to stand as candidates, um, that we couldn't complain that there weren't enough women if we weren't prepared to put our hands up. I was convinced by two close friends who were already in Parliament, um, Helen Clark, who's well-known around the world, who, who was our Prime Minister, um, in fact, went on uh, to UNDP, uh, and also um, a very close friend called Fran Wilde, and they convinced me that I should put my name down as a candidate in an electorate um, about an hour from where I lived. I never expected to be selected. That was the first surprise. And then the uh, Prime Minister of the day, uh, Sir Robert Muldoon, called a snap election in 1984 on Bastille Day. And um, I was surprisingly elected because the seat that I was standing in had never been won by the Labour Party. And so one day um, I was um, I was a tutor at the dental school in Wellington and the next day I was a member of parliament. And there I stayed, uh, except for a three-year break, uh, for 30 years. So High Commissioner King has had a front row seat to what has been a pretty impressive transformation in the representation of women in politics, including at the highest level. Well, uh, Jacinda is our third woman prime minister in New Zealand. Um, Helen was the second, and a woman called Jenny Shipley was our first. Um, so it's it's not a surprise these days to have a woman as prime minister. So people don't go, "Wow, isn't that amazing?" They, they it is uh, now having the third. It's it is um, just accepted. But for uh, the changes that are in the New Zealand Parliament, and from the time that I was elected in 1984 to today, where there are now 48% of our parliament are women, has been a huge shift over that time. And I think there are two main things that have brought about the change. The, 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 you could probably name others, but the two that I um, concentrate on is the um, drive um, to have more women in parliament by the Labour Party and by, by um, having an affirmative action programme that said that, you know, when you've got two candidates and they are equal, the woman should be selected. And selecting women into to winnable and safe seats, um, as opposed to what had happened in the past, where women were often, as I was, put into unwinnable or marginal seats. And if you did win them, you were likely to lose them if the tide was going out on your party, which was what happened to me um, and when I left Parliament for three years because the seat I was in was a rural seat and I came back in three years later in a city seat that was much safer. So that that is one reason. So pushing women into seats and pushing women into position became an affirmative action um, for the Labour Party. I asked the High Commissioner, so what advice would you give Canadians and others based on the New Zealand experience? Well, first of all, can I commend Canada uh, for having a cabinet that was 50% women? We still haven't achieved that in New Zealand. Um, and so we can certainly learn from that, from Canada in that respect. Um, and, and I don't really want to give lessons to, to Canada, but... but I think if you were looking at the change in New Zealand and you were going to put your finger on on one issue, it would be the electoral system. There might be others who disagree with me, but I, I, 
I can see the change and and I can see the change that happened um, from 1996 for this very diverse parliament. And when you look at it now, you feel like you're looking at New Zealand. I'm the High Commissioner here. Um, our, our closest neighbour um, is the Canadian High Commission. We're right next door to each other in, Can in, in Canberra. And we have a, an extremely warm and working relationship with your High Commissioner here and with his staff. Um, and we know where our friends are and who we can call on and, and Canada are our friends. And I hopefully Canada sees us as their friends. So are you hearing what I'm hearing? Each country we have visited so far has had its own story to tell. All are working towards addressing gender inequality in their country and in their politics, but in different ways. In Denmark, the leadership came from within political parties, whereas in Taiwan, legislated quotas have mattered. And in Chile, steps of progress have been about broad constitutional change. New Zealand provides yet another example where the combination of an electoral system and the actors within it actually prioritizing diversity has translated into real results. And after three prominent female prime ministers and a pregnant prime minister with a second chance, no less, seeing women lead is not unusual anymore. I'd like to thank our speakers today for making time to be part of this project and to New Zealand's High Commissioner to Canada, Martin Harvey and his team for working with us to set these up. So where are we off to next? Well, we're headed closer to home next week and to a country that you might feel like we know as well as we know our own. Next episode, we will be in the United States to see what's been tried and what's worked. I will see you there. No Second Chances is a special project of Canada 2020. This episode was written and hosted by me, Kate Graham, and edited by Aaron Reynolds. No Second Chances is produced by the Canada 2020 team, including Carolyn Smith and Aisha Jara, under the leadership of Executive Chair Anna Gamey. The music is by Meredith Yillenos. More information about the project can be found at nosecondchances.ca. The No Second Chances podcast has been made possible by the generous support of Margaret McCain and MasterCard. MasterCard.